will and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. These next few weeks we're going to do something that's a little different from my normal manner of handling a text or, or dealing with a, a text and that is generally as you know we'll start at verse 1 chapter 1 and move through a book and I had told you that after Jude we were going to do that with the gospel of John and we are still going to do that with the gospel of John just not today. Uh, but for the next several weeks, I want to follow up our series on Jude with a short series out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Uh, we'll probably spend about six or seven weeks in that, getting us almost right up to the Christmas season. And that'll be a great time to start John, uh, the Gospel of John, to look at that at that particular time. But I, I wanted to really do this for several reasons. I prayed about how to go after closing out Jude a few weeks ago, which... By the way, I, I thought I really stretched Jude out, 10 sermons over that little book of 25 verses. When I was at a trustee meeting this past Monday, I was talking to two friends of mine who are um, both preaching through Jude also. We started on the same Sunday, unbeknownst to the others. And I told them, well, I finished uh, before I left for vacation. I did 10 sermons on those 25 verses. And I was thinking, boy, I did a lot. And, and Walter Price, my buddy from California, said, well, that's interesting. He said, I'm going into verse 4 this week, and it's my seventh sermon. So uh, I guess 10 weeks in Jude was not all that much after all. But anyway, as we looked at Jude, one of the things that Jude started out the book with, in, in verse four, uh, 3 as a matter of fact, when he was talking about, I really wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you about the commonality that we have in Christ and what Christ has done. But I, I felt compelled, I felt absolutely driven, if you will, uh, to, 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 to write to you an appeal to you that you contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He said, I, I wanted to talk about this the side of, of, our, of what God has done, what Christ has done. But there are false teachers that have slipped in among you. There are those who have come in, as he said, unnoticed and unawares, and, and they're beginning to spread cancerous-like untruths, falsehoods among the body. And so I felt I needed to write to you to urge you, to plead with you, to beg you to contend for the faith, stand firm in the faith, Stand on the truth of God's word. Stand on the truth of the gospel. And so he wrote those 25 verses, that short letter, encouraged him to do that, showing them some of the era that was around them, and say, now stand firm against that. Well, I had several people ask me after that series or toward the end of that series, okay, you've warned us as Jude did. You've told us about the, the eras that are around us, or at least some of them. I certainly didn't exhaust that because that would have taken... Uh, far more than 10 sermons to exhaust the warnings of eras that are around us both in and outside of the church but but they said you, you've told us about that you've you've pled with us to contend for the faith tell us how do we do that I mean what do we do when you say contend for the faith does that mean if we hear somebody say something that's not exactly right we get in their face and and pick a fight with them well no you don't want to do that that's not the best way to do it but there are ways that the scripture has shown us that we are to be prepared when, when certain things arise in our life. And one of those Paul deals with in, in chapter 6 of Ephesians where he talks about spiritual warfare and where he talks about putting on the armor of God. 
And it's, it's amazing the way he, he kind of parallels those things. Remember, I've got a slide back there I'm going to let David put up right now. Actually, they're talking, so they're, <laughs> they're busy. But if they would put that up right now, it's a slide uh, that's there. It's the Bible. No, there it is. Okay, there's the, uh, just, just to kind of get a, a mental picture of what a Roman soldier's uh, armor looked like. Now, in the coming weeks, I'm just going to have that up there. Well, probably not that one. I've got a caricature I like to use a little better, which is the next slide. And that's the one we'll probably look at over the next few weeks. Uh, that's Theo. Uh, Theo was drawn for me by a lady in my first church out of seminary when I was preaching on this, and uh, I kind of like to use Theo. I actually have Theo on a big canvas. It's about seven feet tall and about four and a half feet, five feet wide, and I unrolled it sometimes and use it, but I decided not to hang Theo up here. I just put him on the screen. But we'll look at that in depth because Paul is concerned that we be prepared when spiritual warfare comes upon us. Now, I dare say that we live in the 21st century don't think a lot about spiritual warfare. We don't think a lot about what it means to be in the battle. But I'll tell you this right now. There's a battle going on for the minds and a battle going on for the souls of men and women who are in Christ and there's an enemy who fights against us. The story is told of Martin Luther, the great reformer, who we think about, about this time of year because October 31st is Reformation Day where Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany to begin what was known as the Protestant Reformation. But, but there was a, there's a story out of Luther's life, and if you've watched the movie Luther, uh, it's really quite dramatically portrayed where Luther is struggling about what he's to do, struggling about justification by faith alone, struggling about why he must stand firm against some false teachings within the church of his day. And Luther is in his study at this time, and he's praying and he's agonizing, and the Satan becomes so real to him, the spiritual battle becomes so real to him that he's yelling at Satan and he's screaming at Satan and he's telling Satan to get out, and evidently Satan's not leaving him along to his, uh, to his uh, satisfaction. So he reaches down on his desk and he picks up an inkwell and he flings the inkwell at Satan and tells him to get out. The inkwell splattered against the wall, and there was a big ink blot, ink spot, ink stain there on that wall that stayed for many years and reminded people who in subsequent years used that study and used that place of, of refuge of the battle that had taken place in Martin Luther's life. The battle was real to Luther in spiritual warfare. And the, the sad thing is, it's no less real in our lives today. It's just that we have become so desensitized to the work of the enemy against us. We've become so desensitized to really standing firm in Christ so many, uh, many times. We, we've become so desensitized to that that we compromise and we give in when God would have us stand firm, clearly stand firm. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We're just going to look at the first uh, few verses today and as kind of an introduction. We're not even going to get into the, to the meat of it as far as the, the armor goes. But I, I want you to hear this. Listen at verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now that's why I wanted Todd to read as our scripture reading this morning from 1 Samuel the story of David facing Goliath. 
that's a story that is that we all know as children. We, we grow up knowing about David went out, had his five smooth stones and his slingshot, and he slung it around, and he hit Goliath between the eyes, and Goliath the giant came tumbling down, and he died right there before David. And we all know that story is such a, uh, uh, the little guy, the little kid, the young person that went out and, and slew the, uh, the giant of, of the Philistines. And, and so we hear about that all the time. The thing that we sometimes don't realize is that David was not depending on those five stones. David was not thinking, this is my weapon, and I don't care what kind of weapon they bring out, I'm good with a slingshot, so I will strike him dead right where he stands, and the, the, Israeli, the, the Israelite army will be set free. No, he wasn't thinking about that at all. He was thinking about exactly what he said in that last verse that Todd read this morning, the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you to us. The battle is God's, and as long as David knew as he was standing firm in the truth of God, in the truth of his word, if you will, where in the spiritual battle, even before Paul ever talked about the spiritual battle, that, that as long as he stood firm there, there was no way Goliath could harm him. There was no way Goliath could defeat the armies as long as David was standing there trusting in God and acknowledging that the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver. When we face spiritual battle today, so often we tend to try to do it in our own strength. We try to do it as, uh, you know, pulling up our bootstraps and gritting our teeth and, and saying, we will overcome this, we will do it. But finally be strong in the Lord in the might of, in the strength, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Not just part of it, but the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We need to recognize that. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This whole concept of standing firm, being strong, seeing the struggle is not against man, not against other people, but against spiritual beings, spiritual forces, rulers, powers in, the, in this darkness, this, this dark age in which we live well, between the cross and, and, and the consummation when Christ comes again. The, the thing that, that Paul is wanting to see here is that there is a real battle, there's a strong battle, and that Satan has always been and always will be trying to destroy the things of God. He did it in Bethlehem. He did it there when Jesus was first born. If you'll recall, he had his agent Herod in that particular case to call for all the babies to be killed. And he tried to destroy Jesus from his very birth. He told the wise men who, uh, he, who came to, to look for Jesus when they went to the king. They said, uh, where is he? And he said, I don't know what you're talking about, but I tell you what, when you find him, you, you come back and tell me so I can go worship him too. And we know that his, his devices, his, his schemes were not to go worship the Christ, but if he was going to be king of the Jews, was to go and destroy him so that he would not have a rival. He tried to destroy Jesus from his very birth. For generations, for centuries, he tried to destroy the early church with severe persecution. And even in parts of our world today, the church is undergoing severe persecution. To claim the name of Christ is to bring upon on the church in other countries 
severe persecution. And there's a, probably, if you've been reading the news at all lately, there's a pastor in Iran that is under death sentence right now, even as we worship this morning, because he was a Muslim, he converted to Christianity, he became a pastor, he pastors about a 400-member church there in Iran, and the government has arrested him, brought him before the tribunal, and said, either renounce your faith or die, and he refused to renounce his faith. Now, they started putting out some stories, well, we really didn't arrest him for his faith, we, we really arrested him for rape and for pillaging and for, for violence, you know. Uh, but the pro trouble is, the only thing they asked him to do is renounce his faith when he came before the tribunal. And there's a lot going on to try to, to bring to bear some influence. I mean, I don't think there's any pastor in America today that's under the fear of being put to death because of their faith if they fail to renounce it. Not saying that can't get here, but through the centuries, especially the first three centuries of the church, uh, the, the Roman government tried to crush the church, tried to destroy the church, and that was Satan just acting upon it to try to bring it to an end, but it could not do it. Today, in America, perhaps he tries to destroy the church in other ways. Not so much by trying to make it hard to be a Christian like he did in the first three centuries, but maybe he, maybe he approaches us in totally the opposite way. Maybe he attacks us by trying to make it easy to be a Christian easy to claim the name of Christ, easy to live out our lives uh, in comfort and in, in, in materialism and in, in, in all sorts of things that, that just make us ineffective for the gospel because we're so caught up in this world. I, I read that passage out of Colossians for our call to worship for a reason today. Paul said, listen, if you are in Christ, set your mind on heavenly things, set your mind on things where Christ is, where he is seated, because you're seated there with him, and, and you're a part of his kingdom, and you're not a part of the king of this world. But we live so often, I think under the influence of Satan, we live so often as though this is our home, and this is our domain, and this is all there is. And, and so he attacks us today. He tries to destroy the church today through ease. Oh, you could throw in liberalism and modernism and humanism and materialism and hedonism and all sorts of isms that are involved in that. But the, the truth of the matter is, you don't, you don't worry about any kind of persecution because you came to Grace Baptist Church this morning or any other church in this country for the most part. But Paul says, I want you to know that there is a struggle. There is a battle. There is a war going on that you are involved in. And, and it's, it's not, you're not able to just say, well, you know, I don't want to be in, I'm a pacifist, you know. I want to be just a spiritual pacifist. I don't want to be in war. I just want us all to live in ease and, and everything. Well, then Satan's got you already if that's your idea. Because the enemy of Christ is the enemy of his church. And the enemy of his church is the enemy of you if you are a part of his church, a part of the covenant family, and a part of the, 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 the body of Christ. There is that battle that must take place. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. He doesn't say be strong in yourself. Uh, one thing we have, we, we live in the culture that is the culture of absolutely self-sufficiency and self-help. You, you know that. Uh, you watch the television, you listen to the radio, and, and, and everywhere people are saying, listen, you can do it. 
You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about anything, man. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can, you can be happy. You can be rich. You can be whatever you want to be. It's all about self-help, and it's all about self-sufficiency. And Paul says here, I want you to understand that in this battle, you can't be strong in yourself. You can't be strong in your own sufficiency. You can't be strong just because you are here. You must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. battle is the Lord's, David said. It was no less true today than it was a couple of thousand years ago or 3,000 years ago when David first uttered those words. Be strong. Stand firm. Put on the armor. Now putting on the armor is important. There's, there's the armor there that covers every part of the body. The head, the, the, the midsection through the breastplate, the belt, the shoes, the uh, the, the shield and the sword, those are all a part of the armor of a normal Roman soldier. Why did Paul choose that, you wonder? Or I, I've often wondered. And I think the reason is quite simple. Paul, when he wrote Ephesians, was imprisoned. Ephesians is part of the prison epistles. And he wrote those from prison and we're told in, in Philippians that while he was in prison there, he, he was chained to a praetorian guard 24 hours a day. All, all around the clock, there was a praetorian guard. Now, the praetorian guard, go back to the other slide. It probably is more indicative of what a praetorian guard looked like. Theo's a little overweight. But, but the, uh, the, I didn't pose for that. But the, the, uh, the praetorian guard were, um, were the elite, arm, elite of the army of Rome. They were the ones who guarded Caesar and his family. They were the ones who were on the forefront of battle at all times. And, and, and because Paul was a political prisoner as, as well as a spiritual prisoner, we know he said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord here, and I'm here because of God's purposes. But, but Rome and, and Caesar saw Paul as a political prisoner. And so they guarded him by their most elite forces 24-7. Remember, every six hours... Every six hours, they would come in and change the guard on Paul. One would leave, one would be chained to him again, probably on about a six or eight foot chain, not very far away at any time. We know that Paul used that time to witness to them, to share the gospel with them, because at the end of the Philippians, when Paul says to the Philippian church, those who are, here, who are here in Rome send you greeting, especially those who are of Caesar's household. They had gone back into the very family of Caesar and shared the gospel, and some of Caesar's own family and, and household servants had become believers. So the Praetorian Guard, they were a powerful group, they were a strong group, they were an influential group, and Paul was with them at all times. And they were always in full armor when they guarded him. So I just can imagine Paul looking at that, at that soldier day in and day out, morning and night, round the clock, and as he's thinking about it, writing the Ephesian Christians, he looks at him and says, you know, it's that breastplate. That breastplate protects the midsection. It protects the vital organs of life. You know, in the Christian life, righteousness does that. And we'll talk about what kind of righteousness that is and what that's all about later on. But, but we'll talk about it. And you know, as he looked at it, he said, you know, the, the, the belt, the belt 
helps the soldier in the time of battle to be girded and to be strengthened and to be able to stand firm and to be able to take his tunic and tuck it in and so that he doesn't trip up over his tunic. It, it helps him be ready to run into battle. That's, that's kind of like truth is and truthfulness is in the Christian life. And one by one, and we'll talk about them more in depth, but one by one, the apostle looked at that Roman soldier, and as he wrote the Ephesians, he said, you know, as I look at this soldier, here's the piece of the armor that corresponds to what you need to be effective in the Christian life. This is the part of the armor that corresponds with what must take place in your life if you are going to stand firm, if you are going to be effective in your contending for the faith that was once, and all, once for all delivered to the saints. So, so Paul is just interested here that, that the people understand what it means to stand firm, to be strong. And, and he does this, interestingly, in this passage, I think by giving some, some details about it that we need to understand and, and need to draw from other passages of Scripture. Five things I want you to see. J just five simple things. Jot these down, remember them, think about them, and we'll talk about them more in the weeks to come. But how is the believer... Here's the question. How is the believer in the 21st century to deal with the enemy, Satan, who is real, who is not all-powerful, who is not omnipresent, who is not like another god that's just an equal with God fighting it out. No, he's very, uh, very inferior to God. But he is a powerful spiritual being with legions who do his bidding. How is the believer to deal with Satan? I mean... Maybe I ought to start by saying here, yes, I do believe in Satan. I don't believe it's just an analogy or a, or a metaphor. I believe he's real, real spiritual being. But how's the believer in the 21st century to deal with Satan? Five things. First of all, the believer must recognize that Christ has already defeated Satan. And that's, that's a place you have to start. You have to recognize that you are in Christ protected by him, secured by him. He is your Lord. He is your protector. He is your salvation. And you need to realize that the one that you are in has already defeated Satan. John talked about that in 1 John 3, 8, when he said, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Or Hebrews, we spent a couple of years in Hebrews and, and if you remember back at the very beginning in chapter 2 verse 14 the, uh, the writer of Hebrews there said therefore since the children share in flesh and blood we have flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same the incarnation that through death he might render powerless him who has the power who had the power of death that is the devil so both Luke in Hebrews and John in 1 John make the statement that Satan has been destroyed. His works have been destroyed. His power has been rendered powerless. He has been, uh, all that he had to, to bring about death and power of death and all that, it's been rendered totally and completely powerless by the death of Christ. I, I really believe that's what Jesus meant when he hung on the cross. And those last words that he said from that cross were what? It is finished. It is finished. And he wasn't saying, okay, I'm going to die now. It's finished. He wasn't saying anything about 
Well, it's finished. They won. Satan won. The Romans won. The Jewish authorities won. It's finished. It's over. It's done for. No, when he hung there and said, it is finished, he said, my purpose for coming is finished. My purpose for coming is done. And while everybody out there thought that it is finished meant that they had won, they found out three days later that they had not won, that indeed they had lost. Because the one who they put on the cross and then put in a grave came forth out of that grave alive and alive forevermore. You need to recognize and acknowledge in your life that Christ has already defeated Satan, which really brings us to the second point. The second thing you need to recognize is that the power that defeated Satan, the power of Christ, is dwelling in you. The power that defeated Satan, if you are in Christ, that power is in you. It's not your power. It's not your strength. It's not your might. It's the might of Jesus Christ. It's the might of Almighty God. I've had John said again in 1 John, 1, uh, 1 John 4, 4. He said, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because, listen to this, because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that's in you. Christ indwells. Christ lives by the power of his Holy Spirit within the believer. The, 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 the Christ who defeated Satan at the cross and in the resurrection, that Christ indwells you. So greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who's in the world? Satan is. He's the prince of the power of the air. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thirdly, not only should you know that Christ has defeated Satan, not only should you recognize that power and dwells your life now, but thirdly, you must be alert to Satan's efforts and resist them by the power that dwells within you, the power of Christ. I mean, think about what Peter said. Peter said, be sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. You know what be on the alert means? Be actively watching. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, by other believers. They're, they're standing firm. They're resisting him. They're refusing to be defeated by him because of Christ. And, and really one way you, you stand firm and you resist, the one way you're alert of his efforts and resist those efforts is to put on the armor, which is what Paul is saying to the Ephesian Christians in 10 through 13. Put it on, wear it, but be alert to his schemes. Now how do you do that? Well, one way, you read in the Scripture, you study the Word, you understand what His purposes are. His purposes are to defeat you. His purposes are to try to get you to turn your uh, back on Christ, uh, trying to get you to disbelieve Christ, to doubt Christ in any situation. Because, see, every time we enter into sin, we're giving Him just a semblance of victory in our life. And, and what that is, when we enter into sin, we enter into sin because we don't believe Christ. Do you get that? 
We enter into sin because we don't believe Christ. Christ says, I will keep you from it. I will protect you from it. I will, I will guard you. I, I have something better for you. My, my way is better than that way. But, but when we enter into sin, it's disobedience, and we enter in there because we don't trust Christ as we ought. And, and listen, Satan is not going to try to get you to do something. You really, he's not going to tempt you in areas that are just ugly and detestable, at least not at first. At first, he's going to bring something that's very desirable, something that, that you find pleasurable, something that, that you know, is, is a part of your normal desire anyway. And, and he's going to heighten that. He's going to picture that. He's going to say it's better than, than anything you could ever imagine. And, and that's part of his temptation. You think of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Those were all good things. When, when Jesus was driven into the, the wilderness by the Spirit, the Gospels tell us, and the Holy Spirit took him out there. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't eat a thing. And then at the end of that 40-day fast, after he broke the fast, Satan came to him in order to tempt him. And, and, and Satan looked at him and said, Listen, Jesus, you know, you're the Son of God. Here's some rocks. You don't have anything to eat. All you got to do is say it to those rocks. They'll be turned to bread and you can eat. Nothing wrong with bread. Nothing wrong with eating. Those are good things. Those are natural things. It's, it's, a, it's a necessity of life to eat. And so Satan just says, look, you're the son of God. Look at those stones and turn them into bread and let's have some bread. And, and Jesus, of course, defeated him by quoting scripture, which we'll look at later in this, in this uh, series, uh, by simply quoting the scripture and saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Bread's not the ultimate food. But the truth of God being fulfilled in our life is the ultimate food. He took him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said, show these people that you're the son of God. I mean, isn't that why you came? To let people know that you're the son of God? To show the whole world that you're the Messiah? Isn't that why you came? Let's show them quickly. Jump off the temple. God will rescue you, set you down easy. And the people will be awed and amazed and they'll say, wow, now there is the son of God. He said, but you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But it was a good thing to be recognized as the Christ, wasn't it? It's a good thing to be recognized as the Messiah. And then the last one, he looked out over all the world and he said, he said, look, Jesus, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you everything you can see. I'll give you the whole world. They'll be under your domain. You'll have them. Well, what Satan didn't realize was he already had them. They were already his. They didn't belong to Satan to begin with to give away, but he used a good thing to try and tempt him. In your life, Satan will only use things that you find desirable. And they'll be beautiful. They'll be lovely. They'll be exciting. They'll be pleasurable. You have to be aware. You have to be alert to what he desires to do. Quickly, fourthly, give no place to Satan in your life. Don't open the door. We'll talk about that when we talk about the breastplate in the armor but says you know Ephesians 4:27 the same book Paul says do not give the devil an opportunity it's an interesting statement don't give him an opportunity to invade don't give him an opportunity to to infiltrate don't give him a uh, don't give him an open door to walk through is what Paul is literally meaning there and you don't give him an opportunity by a not by, by not being ignorant of his schemes 
2 Corinthians 2.11, see to it that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know he's a scheming uh, creature, desiring to bring us down, desiring to destroy us. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. That's being alert to his efforts like we talked about. Secondly, you're, you give him no place by, when you see temptation coming, what should you do? Flee. <laughs> Run. I mean, Paul said to young Timothy, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Notice that Paul did not say just flee. Didn't say just flee. He said flee from the lust and pursue what? Righteousness. Yeah, flee from the lust, pursue righteousness. Pursue, that, that's no more than just pursue him. Pursue Christ because he is our righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. He is our righteousness. So flee and pursue. And, and thirdly, on giving no place to Satan, don't give him a place by harboring unconfessed sin. I knew it in college years ago, used to say, keep short accounts with God. That's, that's, good, that's a good counsel. Don't go around harboring unconfessed sin. When God reveals sin, confess it. John said in 1 John 1, 9, said, since we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we don't confess it, and confession's not going to a priest or going to a pastor or going to somebody and saying, oh, you're not going to believe what I did. It's not even going to God and saying, God, you're never going to believe. God already knows what you did. But confession, to confess, is the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means the same. Legeo comes from leo, which means to speak or to say. And so confession is really just to say or to speak the same thing about sin that God says about it. When God says that is sin in your life, you need to confess that in your life. Confession is saying, yes, Lord, I agree with you, that is sin. Take it away. Cleanse it. Cleanse me and make me strong again. Don't harbor unconfessed sins. And then finally... How do we deal with Satan? How do, we, how do we really deal with him on a daily basis? The fifth way is that we have to bring our thought life under control of Christ through obedience to his word. Our thought life. Because our thought life is the most critical part of the Christian walk. The scripture says in Proverbs, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Heart there just means the most innermost part of your being. As a, as a man thinks, or as a woman thinks, so is he, so is she. Uh, I mean, the idea there is that our thoughts are critical to how we live. And, and so our thought life has to be brought under the control of Christ uh, uh, through obedience to his word. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. How are we doing that? We're doing that by taking every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ. Bring in our thought life. And, and we, we do that by monitoring what comes in visually, audibly, reading, watching, hearing. What are those things saying? Are, are they glorying to Christ? Are they, are they edifying? I don't mean it's only reading the Bible. But, but what is, at least for heaven's sake, balance all that other stuff with reading the Word. At least balance it or maybe give a majority to the Word over other stuff. James said in James 4, 17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it's sin. So if we know in our mind and we don't do it, we're not bringing our thoughts under the obedience of Christ. We're not bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Or Paul to the Philippians. When he said, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Wow. That's, that's sort of the computer principle that Paul is using. I don't think Paul had a computer 2,000 years ago, but he understood it better than we do. Garbage in, garbage out. You know, you, you only get out of the computer what you put in it. Uh, most of you here understand that. I remember when I was first working on a, a, a dissertation, I was told you got to have a computer. This was back when they were just coming out. You got to have a computer. Man, you got to have a computer. You can write it. It'll, it'll almost write itself. I thought, oh, that's, I like that. So I got the computer, bought a K-Pro 2, a box. And I sat down and I typed in the title and I just sat back and said, okay. Do it. And if you'd been there, you'd have said, he's lost his ever-loving mind. No, it did make it easier, but but you've got to put in the data and sort the data and arrange the data. If it's not in there, it can't come out. A computer can only give out what you put in. And and we're that way in the Christian life. When, When pressure comes, when stress comes, when difficult times come, the only thing that's going to come out of our mouth and out of our heart is going to be what has been put in. Whatever is good and honorable and right and pure and lovely and all of these things. And, and, and Paul closes that by saying, the things you learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you want to defeat Satan, if you want to live in a way honoring to Christ, We've got to recognize there's a war. We've got to recognize there's a battle. And we have to apply the truth of God's word. We have to take every thought captive to Christ. That's kind of what it means that he is Lord. <laughs> it means that he is our authority. He is our boss. He is the one who is to control our thoughts and control our actions and control our living. And we are to submit ourselves to that willingly. Because by grace, He has brought us to faith in Christ. By His grace, He has loved us. By His grace, He has pursued us. By His grace, He has saved us. He doesn't just save us to keep us from hell. He saves us 
to give us a life here that is strong in the Lord, standing firm, struggling against the spiritual forces of wickedness in, in this world, in the heavenly places. But to do that, we have to be prepared and we have to put on the armor. Now, we've talked about being prepared a little bit today. We'll start looking at the armor a week from today, Lord willing. Deo valente. Let's pray. Father, in, in so many ways, the enemy has so deceived us that, hey, there's no battle, there's no war, everything's all right, don't worry about it. And we have sat back in ease as though, and this Christian life is easy. But your word says it's a warfare and we are to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And, and Lord, we are to be believers who are standing firm. And not in our strength, but in your strength. Not with our armor, which is made of tin, but your armor, which is impenetrable. Father, help us to Stand firm. Help us to believe. Help us to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ by your word. Help us, Lord, to be cognizant, aware of the schemes of the devil. And, and help us, Lord, not to give him an opportunity, not even for a second. Father, help us to walk in your truth and in your armor by your grace. Father, I pray for men and women who are here this morning, young people who are here that don't know you. I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit will move in their heart and their life and show them their need for a Savior and draw them to faith in Christ, Lord. Show them who the only Savior is. That they might believe. Father, I pray for others that are here that you're working in their life and, and, and they're believers, but yet they have become lazy in the battle. And, and Satan has had some apparent, at least momentary, victories in their life. Father, awaken us to the truth of the battle that's before us. Awaken us to the truth of your truth. And Lord, by your strength working in us, help us stand firm. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.